Investors Chronicle. Welcome to another episode of the IC Interviews podcast. Today, we are honoured to have the IC's most mysterious columnist, the enigmatic Bear Bull, with us on the show again. The Bear Bull column has been part of the IC pages for more than half a century, and prior to that, part of the Stock Exchange Gazette since the early 1950s. The current incarnation, Philip Ryland, is about to hand over the reins to a new steward after 25 years in the role. So we thought we'd get together today to talk about the past, present and future of investing and markets. Philip Bearbull, as I should call you, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Dan, hi. Thanks, uh, thanks for asking me. So we're recording this in the final week of December. So really, it feels right to start with the, the near term, the year just gone and the year ahead. And the obvious question, given your moniker, are you bearish or bullish at the moment? Be that through a global prison, the UK, or whatever you may prefer. I suppose I'm moderately bearish. Well, okay, what do I think equities might be doing in the in the year just about to begin? If I can, I try to sort of sidestep forecasts because um, forecasts are hostages to fortune, and often they're really just glorified guesswork. So, if people ask me what do I think about the future, I kind of say to them, well, what does the past tell us? The best guess of the future is often what is a typical sort of year. A typical year for UK equities is, well, depending on your perspective, if you want to sort of take the average of um, the last 120 years or so, then typically I'd expect that um, UK equities are going to return about um, oh five six percent this year. And on top of that, you've got a, a, a dividend yield of, um, let's say, three and a half percent or thereabouts to come. Um, now, very conveniently, that would be sort of, you know, that, that, that's pretty much the average of the past 100 years or so. And that's not a bad return to be having. If we were talking in 12 months time, uh, as 24 is about to elapse into 25, and we were looking at an 8.5% uh, return from UK equity, uh, including dividends. And let's, uh, let's imagine that inflation stays, uh, you know, reasonably quiet. Uh, again, we're guessing now a typical year for inflation might be sort of three and a half percent. This coming year, it might be a bit more than that. But if we were talking in those terms, and therefore we were talking about a real return from UK equities of about 5% in 24, I'd be saying that's pretty damn good. I'd want to have that because it would be rather more, rather more than we've got in the past few years. Now, whether we'll get it, I don't know. But my point is that that would be fairly typical. Um, so if it does happen, it would be nice, but it wouldn't be that unusual. Let's turn to the, the backdrop, certainly for the UK, the economic backdrop, that is. In your column to be published at the end of December, so it will be available by the time this is a broadcast, you talk about some of the, the issues facing the UK economy relating to things like productivity, etc. I mean, we're often told and reminded that the economy is not the stock market and you know, the FTSE 100 is clearly very globally exposed. But can you say a little bit more about these issues and maybe the, the intimation in that column that the economy could have more bearings on UK returns in future if it, if it hasn't been doing so already over the past five, 10 years or so? In a way, it's not so much the economy which uh, have the bigger bearing. Maybe it's the extent to which politics and matters relating to politics will affect the economy, which then affects the stock market, which affects stock market returns and so on and so forth. 
Mm. Um, so, okay, first of all, one can throw in the caveat that, as, as you say, the economy is not the stock market, and that's certainly not the case in, in terms of a trading nation like the UK. I mean, what's the familiar figure we hear that uh, is it about 40% of uh, profits from FTSE 100 companies come from, a, come from overseas? So, you know, if you're talking about a 40-60 ratio uh, for FTSE 100 companies, then, um, then the UK economy is, um, well, I wasn't, you know, it, it, it's important, but it's not, it's not fundamental. I think we all, you know, we're all getting used to the idea that the, the, economic background for the UK is for the UK for the Western world in general is not what it was you know we can simplify this and say and say that we're turning into an, an old society we're turning into a society which is too fond of consuming and not fond enough of investing uh, we hear a lot about um, about productivity or lack of productivity in the UK in particular but also throughout the Western world this is partly about uh, not doing enough investing and doing too much consuming. The UK's productivity has been an issue for what for a generation, for more than a generation now. The UK seemed to have got its act together in the 1990s, early 2000s, but then it's had a setback, as the rest of the world had a setback around about the time of the financial crisis in 2008-2009. What the UK didn't do was recover from that crisis in the way that other economies recovered. We still don't really know why that was the case, but we do know that the UK didn't didn't uh, recover well. Uh, the UK's the UK's productivity, therefore, has, has has lagged behind the rest of the world, the rest of the developed world, uh, quite substantially for the past ten years or so. To the extent that you know, we now have increasingly we have an issue. We have an issue because we have a society that demands that has a greater sense of entitlement than it's probably ever had. So its demands aren't diminishing. But the pressure on the government, the pressure on the economy, the pressure to produce is constant and growing, but the wealth isn't responding. So when we relate this to the market and the UK market in particular, I suppose there are two things here. One, that's going to have a, a negative impact, of course, you know, at some level on certainly on UK companies, whether listed or otherwise. Equally, though, when you look at UK share valuations, as of course we all do, and you look at things like you know the gap between US and UK share valuations, which, as you wrote about recently, is pretty wide. Clearly, given the success the US has continued to have at a at a market level, is there a case for to flip it on its head? Almost, is there a case for mean reversion here? I know that's a, a force with which you are you know you credit a decent amount uh, in investing, yeah. and you know sometimes these things can't persist for. Well, they can't persist in perpetuity. So is there a contrarian case for the UK simply in relation to valuations currently, despite all you've just said? Yeah, I think the most certainly is that the trouble is one doesn't know when it's going to happen. Hmm. Um, I mean, you can simplify. I think you can simplify and say that there are there are two sorts of investors. There are momentum investors and there are mean reversion investors. Um, it's probably smarter to be a momentum investor because momentum tends to, momentum always tends to be with us. Often we're not quite sure what the momentum is, but it's always there. Mean reversion sort of creeps upon us um, rather more unawares. Things flip, we don't quite know when they've flipped or why they've flipped, but we see it with hindsight that they've flipped. The new momentum, the change momentum, momentum takes us back to, to whatever the mean was. If the UK economy has been performing badly relative to other economies, 
if the stock market has been performing badly relative to other other stock markets, then yes, at some stage you you, you should expect that that momentum will change. It will flip, and um, there'll be a new momentum there will be therefore, and mean reversion will will, will cause that. Um, so you can imagine it happening. I can certainly imagine it happening. I just don't know really when it's going to happen and uh, what will cause it to happen. I mean, I look at this often in relation to the performance of the bearable income fund. And I say to myself, well, you know, that used to perform very well. Um, now it's performing really rather poorly. I'm not doing anything very different. I think I'm much the same investor that I was in the good times as I am in the bad times. But, you know, now the results are bad. Um, and one isn't quite sure why. And one thinks, well, things things are not exactly wonderful, but they're not that bad. You know, what's going to happen to change it? And I wouldn't pretend to know what would happen to change it. But I would suggest that at some stage there will be a mean reversion, there will be a flip in the momentum, and um, stuff like value will come back into fashion. Um, but um, as I say, quite when that might be, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Mm. Yes, th- those catalysts are always what we're we're looking for, aren't we? Let's talk about the income fund and the bearable income fund. Uh, as you mentioned, it it is twenty five years old this year. As you say, there hasn't been much you're doing differently now than you were a few years ago. But but when you look back over, first of all, the whole period of running it, you know, what have you learned from running an income portfolio over that time? Are there lessons you can take also from the past couple of years, even if it's to an extent, you know, luck, circumstance, the fate of the market that, that has been changing things in the short term? I suppose you could divide those 22, 25 years into two periods. There was Broadly speaking, there was the period up to sort of 2015, 2016, when it did very well. Uh, and then there was the period since then when it's done really pretty badly. A coincidence that that change in fortune also coincided with the change in fortunes of, um, well, it, it coincided with Brexit, of course, which is a, a, a big factor in all this. Brexit also coincided with the change in fortunes in returns from uh, from UK stock market. And in particular, value became uh, far less fashionable than it was. Value fell out of fashion and growth to the extent that the UK market can offer growth, which is limited, became more fashionable. I mean, by and large, what I've always tried to do is buy good companies at decent prices. The caveat there, I suppose, would be that if one is running an income fund, then the choice of good companies tends to be more limited because by definition, companies which offer um, uh, comparably high dividend yields tend not to be the best growth companies. You know, if they were the best growth companies, then almost by definition, they wouldn't be offering uh, a big fat yield on their dividend. Mm-hmm. You know, so therein lies one particular problem of running income funds. There are probably two sorts of income funds, aren't there? There's an income fund in the making and there's an income fund which is actually an income fund which is churning out regular chunks of income. The way you build up an income fund so that it can produce income in the future isn't the way you would run an income fund when it becomes just that, a fund which was always a fund which is there to produce a regular income for its beneficiaries. The Bearville Income Fund was a bit odd in the sense that it always said it will distribute all the dividends that it can generate. It will always aim to generate, uh, it was a yield of about 1.2, 1.3 times the, the all shares average, 
uh, that was that was its target. That was its target yield, and it would distribute all the income that it that it, that it generated. That caused an artificial constraint because in the real world, if one is building an income fund, one would be redistributing that income. Uh, the Bearable Fund never set out to do that. In a sense, wasn't able to do that. Do that. So it had the aim of distributing all the income while simultaneously and to grow the real value of its capital. And it has done that, and it did that marvelously well, if you like, for the first 15 years or so. Um, and it's done that badly in the last seven years or so. Um, it's done that badly in the sense that it's still been able to churn out regular growing dividends, um, with the exception of the year 2020, which you know was very exceptional. Um, but the real value of its capital has fallen uh, in the past seven years. That still means that over the whole of the 25 years of the fund, the real value of its capital has uh, has exceeded inflation by a wide margin, and it's uh, beaten the all share index by a wide margin. So that's all jolly good, but as uh, as we keep saying that that long-term success from the particular success of its of the first half of, it, of its existence. One thing you've been looking at this year with the portfolio is some overseas shares, uh, you know, considering how to add those if there are certain companies that could be added to the portfolio on an income basis. What kind of success or otherwise have you, have you had in, in that search? What kind of companies have you found? Are they distinct from UK shares in any particular way or just different slash better versions in some cases? How have you found that experience? It's probably too early to judge. Um, hindsight would tell us that this is something which I should have done before I, you know, before I did do it. Uh, hindsight tells us that it's something I should have done some years ago. Um, one of the problems, I suppose, with running an income fund is that one will tend to be particularly UK orientated. Mm. And yield tend tend to be in doing this in starting down that road. I was keenly aware that my timing may not be great because of the mean reversion point we were making a few uh, just just a couple of minutes ago. That I'm diversifying. I'm you know I'm diversifying away from the UK just at the point when the UK might be um, at its at its nadir at a, you know at, at the bottom of its cycle. So to the extent that I was diversifying away, then I'm, all, then I'm also saying to myself, well, okay, actually, at any given point, I might have to I might have to switch back to the UK. If it becomes clear that the UK suddenly has momentum, then it would be foolish for me to take money from the UK and put it into the, into the United States or elsewhere. I'm investing in the US basically because, in practical terms, that's where it's easiest for UK investors to go. They fill out the little magical WA Ben form, and that means that they will receive their dividends uh, via their stockbroker. They, they will receive their dividends from US companies via their stockbrokers uh, with no problems. Giving dividends from European companies is much more problematic, so problematic that by and large, I think it's not worth the effort. You know, there might be one or two exceptions to that. Nestle would probably be an exception to that. But, but by and large, if you're going to invest for income overseas, then forget about all markets except the United States. And in a way, that's fine because, you know, the United States is such a big market. It gives you lots of opportunities anyway. And despite the fact that the yield on the U.S. market, I'm guessing now, is probably about what sort of 2.2%, something like that. 
compared with the average yield on the UK on UK shares of more like sort of 3.5 percent. Despite that, there are you know plenty of good quality dividend companies on offer uh, in the in the US market. When we look at company valuation, uh, Charlie Munger, uh, who obviously sadly passed away this year, one comment he made that stands out perhaps in the current moment is, you know, it's better to buy great companies at a fair valuation rather than vice versa, essentially. Do you agree with that principle? Do you think that's a sensible case? Of course, there are always two sides to two such cases, but how do you consider that dictum, as it were, in the, in the current market environment? Uh, I think it probably works in any market environment. If you were, if you were trying to simplify what I try to do, um, then um, that's a good way of expressing it. Mm. I suppose, broadly speaking, you could say that you buy two sorts of companies, don't you? I mean, it, it's 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 the two sides of it's the two sides of the uh, the value investment story. There's Buffett Mark One, who bought cigar box companies, um, where you buy a poor company for a great price. Or, I mean, I'm caricaturing now, obviously, you've got a choice. You buy a poor company at a great price or you buy a great company at a fair price. Mark One Buffett did, uh, you know, did, did the earlier exercise. Uh, he bought companies where the share price was, was below their net asset value, often well below the net asset value, and, you know, waited for that, uh, waited for that discount to, to unwind, however it unwound. Um, or you buy companies probably for much more than theirs and net asset value but it didn't that doesn't really matter because the companies are going to grow and then in the long run you'll be much better off uh, than that it's not just munger who sort of lighted on that truth uh, and i think several uh, several growth investors also sort of pointed in that direction uh, munger i suppose had the most influence on buffett because uh, because he was closest to buffett sure we'll come back to investment philosophy in a, in a moment, but I wanted to talk about portfolio construction a little more first. Uh, another thing we on the IC and, and you in particular have written about uh, a few points this year is is bonds, gilts, of course, in the UK context. Uh, now the yields there are clearly much higher than they have been for a long time, making them look relatively attractive for the first time in quite a while. How do you see those attractions relative to UK equities at the moment uh, in, in you know, a generic portfolio, if you can generalise in such ways, but but also, you know, just comparing like for like almost? Any portfolio has to be diversified. Um, or at least I think it does. Um, and there are only so many things with which one can diversify. In practical terms, there are only so many things with which one can diversify a portfolio. I guess they come down to four sorts of assets, don't they? They come down to equities, they come down to bonds, they come down to commodities, and I suppose maybe also they come down to to, to real estate, to property, although in practical terms, property is often just the subset of equities. Let's keep it simple. Those three asset classes, commodities, bonds, and equities, they don't all move in the same direction. So therefore, and in particular, bonds and equities will tend not to move in the same direction. I mean, they do they do quite a lot of the time, but they don't at other times because bonds are so sensitive. So therefore, any sensible portfolio should have a mix of those three because that's where you get diversification from. That's where you will tend to take out the volatility from returns without affecting the average of uh, investment returns too much. 
So there's that, you know, there's that general point to be made about bonds. There's a more specific point: do they offer value at the moment um, because of because of the yields they offer? I'm not sure. Yes and no is the slightly un unhelpful answer. Uh, I mean, I was struck, for example, a, few, a couple of months ago or so, I've, I've written about this a couple of times, I was struck by the comparatively fat yields being offered by index linked bond. And I thought that, that money for nothing situation, that you had the you had the situation where, go back a couple of years ago, and the redemption yields on index linked bonds, bonds were almost universally negative. And it was ridiculous. It was, you know, you looked at these figures. I mean, quite literally, redemption yields on on medium dated index linked stocks were negatives. And you thought, well, it's funny how one sort of accepts ridiculous things at the time without questioning them often enough. But uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was ridiculous, and you sort of shrugged your shoulders and said, well. Well, that's the way interest rates. You know, that's the way interest rates are nowadays. They're just everything is ridiculous about them. But sooner or later, these ridiculous things unwind. So, negative yields on index-linked bonds in a period of time last year. They well, last year and the and the year before, they changed from being negative to being to being positive. And suddenly, you know, just a few months ago, you were in a situation where um, for a I don't know a, a twelve or fifteen-year-old index-linked bond. You were being offered a 1.2 or 1.3% real return. And then when you started saying to yourself, well, okay, yeah, that 1.2, that 1.3% real return, actually, that's a real return against the retail price index of inflation. And we all know the retail price index of inflation runs because of the way it's constructed, that runs ahead of the consumer price uh, level of inflation, the you know, the government's favorite measure by sure. about a in the long run by about a percentage point. And I think it's, I worked it out uh, the other day. Um, in fact, it's in Burble, I think sometime, sometime last week or soon. Um, it's, a, it's a 0.9 percentage point difference. So you were talking just a couple of months ago, you were talking about real returns from index linked um, guilt of about um, something over 2%, you know, it's sort of 2.1, 2.2%. Now, you know, that's risk-free, that's as risk-free as it gets. What's, what's not to like about that? I mean, that was that was a wonderful opportunity. And interestingly, I wouldn't say that that op that gap has been completely closed, but a one point two percent real yield has now been has now been shaved down to I don't know, it's about sort of point eight, maybe point nine percent. So that's still not bad, because you know, don't forget, you're getting a guaranteed rate that, that that's that's returns in excess of retail price index. So in nominal terms, it's not at all bad, and you're taking zero risk for that. If you've got a, you know, depending on your investment horizon, because you need basically matching the guild stock with um, with whatever investment horizon you have. But if you've got a, you know, if you've got a 10, 12 year investment horizon, which is perfectly normal for for you know for people who are saving for the long term, then why why would you not take that up why would you not put some of your portfolio into that i mean it would just be it would be ridiculous not to as a general you know putting aside the the individual opportunities from what you said at the top there suggests to me you, you do still see bonds as you know a valuable diversifier in portfolios because there's been of course a lot of talk about how a you know quote unquote 60 40 portfolio can function 
you know, whether it can still function in the modern age, even in an environment now where, you know, yields are much higher and there's much more scope for bonds to have something to give, as it were. So yeah. do, you, do you think that that is still a, uh, you know, the bond equity portfolio is still something that's going to hold up as a basic diversification principle in the years ahead? I don't see why not. I mean, it, it has done in the past. It is true that certainly from a UK perspective, it's certainly true that the the short term effect of what, you know, it's kind of we're talking about the as it were, we're talking about the truss effect here, the effect of this truss's short term premiership and the the infamous budget that, uh, that that was cooked up, you know, round about that time, the effect of the effect of that um, that premiership did truly amazing things to to gilt prices and suddenly from being low risk assets for a while they became they became hyper risk assets i mean it, it, you know the figures you could kind of hardly believe the rate at which index link stock in particular was falling and so you have a you had this weird situation where where index link stocks which had been as they should be, they had been um, characteristically low risk investments for, you know, for, I don't know, the previous 20 years or so, which is what you'd expect. Suddenly they became almost as risky as, let's say, commodities or, 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 or oil. Uh, it was really quite bizarre. And I think that kind of threw a lot of people and maybe we're getting back to normality now. I think we're getting back to normality, but I suppose one can't be sure of that. So for a while, it wasn't quite clear what bonds were supposed to do there's really no getting away from the fact that bonds will respond to rising interest rates uh in a predictable way or they will respond they will respond to changes in interest rate in you know in a predictable way interest rates rise their prices will fall interest rates fall their prices will rise that's what will happen equities will respond in a slightly different way uh to the way that to, to the way that bonds will respond when inflation is rising or falling or growth is rising or falling. Sometimes equities will, will respond in the same way as bonds, but not always, because it's sometimes rather than uh, always. That's when the diversification benefits of having bonds in a portfolio will become clear. So if you're sad enough like me that from time to time you, you know, you sort of um, put the monthly data on a spreadsheet and you look at the correlation in price movements between equities and bonds over a over a long period of time, then there's no doubt that they provide diversification benefits. Um, the correlation coefficient is probably is probably just about positive. In other words, in the long run, bonds and equities just about move in the same direction. But on the other hand, you really won't get better diversification benefit than if you use bonds you know all equities whether you like it or not all equity returns will be positively correlated idea of having a portfolio of equities which will be well diversified for risk is it you know it won't happen i'm sorry it, it doesn't happen so if you want diversification you need you need bonds you also just by the by, you also need you need commodities. You need gold in particular. You probably also need oil. I think I'm right in saying that gold will have a negative correlation. So you need those things, but you certainly also need bonds. Mm. We're, we're running short of time, unfortunately, but I do want to talk about, as I said earlier, the some investment philosophy that you may have, if we can use such grandiose terms. And, and maybe a good way to talk about that is in your last column of the year, uh, where you talk about the kind of investor that 
the reader may want to be. Can, can you say a little about the thinking behind that and what ideas you're exploring there, I think, in relation to the efficient markets hypothesis? Investors, by definition, are savers. Um, so generically, we're talking about, you know, this, this category of people who are called savers, people who have surpluses. If you have a surplus, then by definition, you have to save it. The question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with those savings? So if we have, you know, if we have a spectrum of savers, on the one end of the spectrum, you'll have those who are um, who are as risk averse as possible to be. You've got those who want to take almost no risk at all. Um, that's at one end of the spectrum. So they're going to be people who put their money into savings accounts and and, and not a lot, not a lot else. And then you, as you travel along this spectrum from the from the most risk averse uh, to the most risk embracing, then you get people who want to put their money into stuff like equities. People who are probably saving, you know, they 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 will be saving for the longer term, as they should be if they're putting their money into equities. And then you know you get a spectrum within equities themselves, um, and that runs from well, it should run from income stocks, although arguably it hasn't been doing that lately. It should run from income stocks to conventional growth stocks to those to derivatives and so on and so forth. So you've got you know you you have this spectrum of 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 risk, uh, and investors need to decide where they want to put themselves on this on this spectrum and importantly with respect to the efficient market hypothesis they need to ask themselves whether it's really worthwhile putting themselves on the far end of the risk spectrum in the hope of getting uh, excess rewards but certainly not with any clear certainty of getting those excess rewards and there was a quote you mentioned while we were speaking off air before uh, before recording that i thought was quite pertinent to talking when we consider you know because effectively what we're talking about here in some ways is you know whether you're going to be a passive investor or an active investor and can you say a little bit more about that and and about you know the, this ability to maybe be both it was the notion about um, holding two contradictory views in your mind simultaneously wasn't it mm. about that that being the that being the definition of genius um yeah so on the one hand on the one hand the, the efficient market hypothesis is terribly powerful um, I mean, in simple terms, it tells us that it's impossible to beat the market on a systematic basis without putting in something extra. We all know that prices are inefficient. We all know that markets uh, are inefficient to the extent that prices are always changing. Um, and because prices are always changing and because they're volatile, then people sort of say, oh, well, yes, that's a clear indication that the market is not efficient. Uh, it's inefficient. But it's not really like that. The market is efficient because at any given point, it's very difficult to say with confidence that a price is wrong uh, and that therefore it will be corrected in the future. We see, you know, we may see stock prices falling very rapidly. In a period of panic, we'll see them falling rapidly. Um, and so thoughts may turn to inefficient pricing. But it's very difficult systematically when you're in that sort of situation to say that, yes, a price is, is wrong. Uh, and because you can't say a price is always wrong, then therefore you can't say with confidence that, a, that the market is inefficient. Then you have to conclude that the market it's not actually efficient, but it tends to efficiency. And because it tends to efficiency, it's, it's, it's very difficult to beat a market which tends towards efficiency. 
it tends towards efficiency because you know there, there are a lot of people putting a lot of input into those prices and some of the people are very smart and they're very well connected and they're very you know they're, they're, they're clued up and so on and so forth the sum of investors is what powers markets so if you're going to be an active investor you have to sort of ask yourself well okay what do I bring that's special, which means that I can beat that market? The price of the market is its average level. I mean, you know, they don't, they don't call the Doja, the, the Zao Jones average, the average for nothing. It, it's because it's the average price that is made by you and I and millions of other investors who, you know, who, who, who buy and sell these things. So you're competing against a lot of people when you're, in, when you're an active investor. And it does kind of help to stand back from that and say to yourself, well, okay, well, if I'm competing against all these people, why am I so smart that I think I can beat? I don't know. I mean, personally speaking, when I ask that question, I find it very difficult to answer and say, well, yeah, I am smart enough to beat them. Um, I mean, I might try to do it, um, but that's partly another matter. Whether I really expect to succeed in doing it is, is very debatable because, you know, why should I be? Why should I be smarter than all these other people who make up the market? Um, so you have this kind of contradictory thought. Okay, you're trying to be an active investor, partly because it's hugely, in, you know, it's hugely interesting being an active investor. It requires mm. a lot of time. It requires a lot of uh, of thought, and that's that's interesting in itself. Well, that feels like a good place to end. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your time with us, and I'm sure uh, all listeners and readers of the IC will join me in saying thank you as well for your contributions to the publication over the years. Uh, they've been greatly appreciated. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this IC Interviews podcast, but we'll be back next time with another chat, so do join us then. Thank you and goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.